Thank you. Okay. Uh, who needs $20? Seriously. Jerry? Okay. No shame in that. Okay. Who has $20 that they don't need? All right, Bob. Okay. There's, there's, there's not, I'm not keeping it. No, it's not a joke. Uh, before you go there. Still taking. Who else? You got $20 you don't need. You can get more than 20 by the way. All right. Who else? I have $50 I'm putting in it. Chris, you just, you just, Shanna, thank you. Okay, that's good. Thank you. Jeff, Jeff, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lillian. Mel gave $10, the widow's might. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Anybody else? Thanks, Heidi. Got to put these bills in order here. If I was at a bank, I'd, they, they call it disciplining the bills. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, do me a favor. Get, give that to Wilson's. Wilson's. There'll be some more. After church, people will come up and give me some more. We know you guys are moving. We're, we're going to talk about encouragement uh, this week, or excuse me, this month. And uh, next week we'll talk about encouragement uh, through actions, but we're going to talk about in, in, in the power of an encouraging word today. And, you know, we Americans, uh, maybe above anybody in the world, we are conscientious people. You know, we're conscientious about driving through school zones slowly. We put our kids in car seats. You know, we watch out. We wash our vegetables and, and on and on and on, right? Um, we're just careful people. But I, I, honestly, the thing that we should be most careful about, that we're probably the least careful about, is our words. That our words are so powerful, but we're so careless with them. And I want to I look at a passage in Scripture today. And if you turn with me, open your Bibles and find Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles under the chair seat in front of you. And Ephesians 4.29, it says this. I've got to find some light here, sorry. Uh, gosh, I'm getting older. I'm, this, the book is getting further and further away. <laughs> And this print is so small. <laughs> I need to, somebody needs to get me the paperback, big print Bible. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, 
but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So I want to, simple point I want you to take home is uh, from that passage. In fact, let me read that again. I think it bears repetition. Ephesians 4.29. This is in a series of little imperatives, just instructions where Paul uh, like just before this, he was talking about people who steal. He says, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been prone to stealing, don't steal any longer. But instead, work with your hands that you may have something to share. And so now he goes from the work of our hands to the words of our mouth. And he says, don't let any unwholesome talk. And that word in Greek means garbage. Don't let any garbage come out of your mouth. But only, only what is helpful to build others up. And that word build up is the word that that in the the ancient world was used to describe uh, building a house. So it was this positive term of something being increased and matured. But only say what is helpful for building others up, key phrase here, according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen or those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So let's unpack this. What he's really saying, takeaway point, words we say can make or break someone's day or even their life, right? What Paul said in my summarizing of it and rephrasing it is, words we say can make or break someone's day and even their whole life. Yet, you know, we just, we just speak so carelessly and, and we don't understand that, that God's given us this unique power to communicate and speak. And those words convey so much. When I say to parents all the time when I'm talking to them about their kids, I say, do you understand everything you do is amplified in your kids' lives. Everything you do, every word, every gesture, every facial expression, the tone of your words is amplified because you're their parent. But the truth is, our words carry incredible power all the way through the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The prophets, Moses, Jesus, the apostles, they said over and over and over, our words have the power of life and death. And there's not one of us in the room sitting here today or whoever might listen to this little podcast later, the 16 people around the world that listen to it. <laughs> we were going to charge money for it, but not much of an income stream. But if you're listening on the Internet, and actually there are some people overseas who listen, you know you've experienced the power of people saying things to you, and it just breathed life into you. And every one of us here have experienced the power of people saying things to you. And it says in Proverbs, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, right? You felt that. You felt like being stabbed sometimes in your heart by someone's careless words. 
or maybe not careless words, purposeful words, even worse. I've just mentioned careless words, but you know, I think most of us, it's the, the air of the words of carelessness and not so much purposefully cruel words that are our problem. But either one, words are powerful. And so words we say can make or break someone's day. And, and Paul breaks this down real simple. He says, don't let garbage come out of your mouth. And the Greek word meant things that were rotting. And I could, I'm going to give you seven deadly sins of speech. And we've all committed them. And, and I'm not going to, I don't think they need any elaboration because I think most of us understand what each of these uh, words means because we've experienced them and we've spoken them. Uh, criticism. Criticism is a powerful word that, that tears down. It doesn't build up, doesn't minister to people, doesn't encourage them, doesn't give them grace. Gossip, where we say things about people that we know that should be remain private and confidential. But for different reasons, we carelessly speak things that end up hurting people. Third, slander. Now that's, that's things we say about people that, that tear down their character that aren't true. We flatter people, which is really destructive. Proverbs says if you flatter someone, in other words, you, you say something about them that's not true for your own benefit, you spread a net for their steps, a net. In other words, you're, 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 you're preparing them to be trapped. Because they would put nets on the ground to catch animals. Animals step in it, it would grab them. That's what flattery does. Complaining. This is, this is a, a tricky idea, but complaining, there's, there's a proper use of describing thing, it, the describing situation when we're unhappy with it. But it's very, that's to be very carefully used. But we complain. I mean, my gosh, complaining in America is a national sport. We complain about everything. And it's a very destructive practice. It undermines so much. And maybe you've experienced it. Maybe you've done it. People at work all the time stand around and talk. And it's just like we start complaining about work environments or workers or, you know, whatever. We lie. Most of us know that's not a good practice, but we still do it. And then, last of all, this number seven is we boast. You know what boasting is? It's talking about ourselves and, and all the things that we do and we've done. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, with, with that every so often, but sometimes we, we, you know, we oversalt the food, so to speak. And what these seven things do... Let me say them again. Criticism, gossip, slander, flattery, complaining, lying, boasting. And there's more, but these are, I think, the biggest seven. These are unwholesome words. They are garbage that comes out of our mouth. And instead of building people up, it tears them down. And it doesn't meet their needs. It undermines their good, their well-being. So a lot of us, I think, might identify with one or two or maybe more of those words. Paul attaches something to it in this passage. He says, our speech, when we injure other people with our speech, 
when we're critical, when we complain, when we lie, when we flatter, we injure them. And what Paul says is, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And the word in Greek there for grieve means to, to cause pain or sorrow or injury. So what he's saying is, just like Jesus said, as you do anything to the least of these, you do it to me. He's saying again in the body of Christ that the Holy Spirit has created and all the people in the world around us, when we use these words, which, you know, we're, we're talking about encouragement right now because I don't think I've ever lived in a time in history in our country when people were more negative. When negativity, not just, not just certain politicians, I mean people are negative. We do not have anything good to say. I just stop sometimes in supermarkets and just, you know, where there's people around me talking, not to eavesdrop, just listen, what, what are people talking about? People are just negative. People are, I mean, it's like it's just pouring out of people's mouths. Maybe it's always been like that. It hasn't seemed like that to me. Go online. My gosh. You know, companies like Facebook have armies of people that monitor posts because it, they, they get, people just get so carried away with, with typing out just garbage. And of all people in the world, the followers of Jesus are supposed to be the most encouraging people. Because over and over and over, the apostles who, who took the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus and passed it on, they said this. They said, freely you have received, now freely give. We have received so much encouragement from God. We've received so much. Uh, I'll show you what positive words of encouragement are in a second. But all these things have flowed into our lives and given us life. We have to realize we are being affected by this environment we live in, and we are called to be different. We're called not to be unrelentingly negative like everybody else. I don't mean we're going to be perfect. I just mean there has to be some qualitative difference between us and everybody else if we're followers of Jesus. And if there's not, which oftentimes there isn't, we just go, well, okay, then I got some, I got some work to do here. But it's so easy for us to just meld into this environment of negativity and discouragement and, and unwholesome speech, isn't it? Isn't it? It is it for you guys? I talk to you guys. You tell me what you do. I hear your confessions. None of, very few of you are nodding your heads right now, but you should be. We all struggle with this, don't we? Well, if, if we're grieving the Holy Spirit by our words, we should be paying attention to that. We're not just hurting people. We're, God's heart is broken when we speak this way. His heart's broken about just the way things are, the interactions between human beings. It's, it's heartbreaking. Now, he says, don't just, because one thing about the Bible is it's just not focused on the negative. But the negative is a part of our lives, and it's what Jesus came to change. And so Paul says, don't let unwholesome words pour out of your mouth. Don't let garbage just flow out of your mouth. But he says, instead, and let me look at it again. 
So quote it. Instead, speak what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit. And the word benefit there means to give grace, to give charis. The grace of God, that our, our words can convey, they can become vehicles for grace to enter someone else's life. And some of you have experienced that. Probably, probably almost all of us here have experienced that God's grace can be conveyed through the encouraging words of another person. The thoughtful, carefully chosen, encouraging words. Because grace meets us where our need is, doesn't it? It meets us at the need in our heart. Because God is attentive to who we are and our circumstances. And he phrases and sends his word that is just what we need in a moment. And so Paul's saying, you guys, these, the, the believers in Ephesus, you're capable of doing this. You're capable of uh, what James says, bridling your tongue. That's another colorful phrase that, that one of the other apostles used. He says, we don't have to just say whatever pops into our heads. It is possible for us to begin to, to bridle our speech and say things that are purposefully grace oriented and grace-given and life-giving, and that meet particular needs. It just means we have to be attentive to people, right? We have to really listen. We have to really notice. That's a really hard thing for us to do, you know, particularly in our culture. It wasn't just back then. Here's, here's three little simple things I was taught years and years and years ago. If you want to know how to decide when to open your mouth and what to say, here's three simple tests. Before you open your mouth and say something, say, is this necessary? Is this necessary? Do I really need to say this right now? Does this person really need this? Or not just one person, if you're in a, a, an environment where there's other people who could hear it, does anybody need to hear this? Is it necessary? That's what Paul said there. That's the, first, that's the key criteria. What do the people who are listening to me need? Most of the time, we're just thinking about ourselves. But our speech needs to be otherly oriented. John Wimby used to say, we, we need to live otherly lives. That's what love is. In fact, I'm, I'm reading a book. Or, I haven't read a 900-page book in a long time. But I'm wading through a 900-page book right now. And I was, I was reading an, uh, another author who was commenting on this book in, uh, from a footnote, and he said that people have, because of uh, uh, deep currents in our society, and particularly in the church, that in the church, a lot of times churches just look at people as brains on a stick, that we're just thinking beings. But the point of this author is he said, we're not thinking beings. He said, human beings at their soul, at their core, are lovers. We don't think, therefore, we are. We love, 
therefore we are. That we were made to love. Our, we were made to be loved by God. We were made to love God and love others. That is the essence of what it is to be human. It is to love. It's not to think. But we should be thinking so that when we speak, our speech demonstrates love for the people that hear us and a unique, specific kind of love. If at all possible, we don't just say things. We aren't really careless with our words. And it's easy to do, isn't it? You know, we joke around uh, stuff. I was joking with someone this morning. I realized, oh, my gosh, I definitely, if I didn't, if I didn't cross the line of joking carelessly, I was pretty close. You know, the, I hit the curb. There's black marks on the curb where I was driving today as I, with my conversation. And it's just easy to do that. Well, not only is what I'm going to say necessary, is it true and is it kind? Is it necessary, true, and kind? Do you ever ask those questions when you're thinking about opening your mouth? If, if you begin to ask yourself those questions on a regular basis, you're going to find yourself practicing life-giving speech because you're going to find yourself saying, no, don't say that. That is not necessary at this moment. Or it's necessary and true, but is it? it's not kind. i got to figure out how to say this in a way that's kind. And some of us who are kind-hearted go, oh, yeah, it's necessary and it's kind. But then we struggle with saying the truth. Sometimes the truth is hard to get out there. So here's five life-giving types of speech that, that every one of us can practice on a regular basis. And the first one is apologies. You thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? I think, I think if there's a form of speech that's life-giving, this is at the top. Because when we apologize for things that we say, we are thinking about the injury we've caused someone else. And we're owning it. And we're trying to repair it. We're trying to, as they say in legal terms, make them whole. And if you become a person who says, I want to become a person who's quick to apologize, you're going to be a, become a person who is very well respected. You're going to become a person who, who impacts other people. You're going to become a person who loves people who is loved by people, you're going to become a person that pleases God. The Holy Spirit's going to be pleased with you in a profound way. Apologies are really, really good things. But you know what? Getting an apology out of some of us is pretty tough. And we just need to put the shoe on the other foot once in a while and realize this is a good thing for me to do because I want people to apologize to me when they've offended me. Secondly, we need to be people that affirm other people. You know what affirming is? It's noticing something good in someone else, and it's pointing it out to them at least, if not to other people. And it's not doing it with flattery in mind. That's tricky sometimes, isn't it? But when, if we affirm people, we empower them. 
we empower them in powerful ways. I mean, we make them into a person. You know, our identity is shaped by what other people say of us. You can't shape your own identity. You can believe things about yourself that are true, but they're the things that other people say. You have to have people speaking good into your life for your character and your identity to be established in a way that you can live from it 24-7, and and it can become a healthy part of your life. Affirmation is like that. Uh, I'll give you an example of that later. Gratitude. Gratitude. Just thanking people for things that they do for us. Thanking people for things they do for others that don't have anything to do with you. How often do you do that? We try to teach our kids to do that, right? And it's important. Because gratitude has so many benefits for us that, that speak it. But it's really a powerful, powerful tool. God uses in the lives of other people. Fourth, admonishment, correction. Believe it or not, correcting people is a way to give people grace. Now, some of us, that's our main way of giving people grace. (laughs) We just are correcting people right and left, you know. (laughs) Every once in a while you think, well, the Holy Spirit lives in me, so I can play the Holy Spirit everywhere. (laughs) No, not good. You need to be giving out at least three times as much affirmation and encouragement and apologies and positive reinforcement as you do every critique and every appropriate criticism and every admonishment. And with our kids, I think it needs to be, you know, eight or ten times as much. Because we all just tend to be like the credit report. The bad stuff comes up first. Then all the bills we paid on time come later. But it's the bad stuff we notice first. And it's the bad stuff that comes up inside us. And each of us battle that. We battle remembering who we are. But it gets reinforced when we encourage and affirm each other. Last of all, comfort each other. When people are hurting, you don't have to say a lot, but words of comfort go a long way. I'm sorry for your loss. It's a simple thing. Very simple thing. But a lot of times we think, oh, people don't want to hear that. They do. People care. Words of comfort are really, 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 really powerful. So let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. Uh, there was a famous, famous uh, photographer, Edward Steichen. I don't know if you guys ever saw any of his work. If you saw some of it, you've seen it. He did a lot of black and white photography back in uh, early to mid, uh, early to, to three quarters of the 20th century. And uh, When he was 16, he was really curious and interested in in photography. And there's something in him. He also became an artist and a museum curator, et cetera, et cetera. But he got a camera, and, uh, you know, his his mom encouraged him, yeah, go, you know, save your money, buy a camera. He bought a real simple camera. And and his family said, well, take some pictures, and let's, you know, let's, let's see what you can do. So he took 50 pictures. And only one of them turned out. They were just 50 of them. 49 of them were terrible. And one of them was a picture of his sister sitting at a piano. And it was a great photograph. And his mom had an eye for it. But his dad said, 49 
bad pictures, you know, he had no future in this. And just kind of put him down. And, and Edward was really young. Edward was really discouraged. His mom said, no way. A picture like this, one picture like this, is worth 49 bad pictures. You have an eye for this. And she encouraged him. And that was the reason why he, he was going to quit right there. Because he thought, I'm wrong. That one encouraging word from his mom, that one thing, started his career. And if you ever, you know, if you look up Edward Steichen, you'll see. I mean, it, 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 he had this amazing ability to, to capture uh, features of people and, and it, it portrait sort of settings. Uh, there's one. Second, let me give you another one. Uh, there's a guy who's uh, a leader in Youth with a Mission named Floyd McClung. And, and, and he's just a few years older than me, and he was in high school in the late 60s. And he tells a story about this teacher at, at, his, at school. And uh, she was an English teacher, and she uh, just loved her students and, you know, was really well-loved. And so she one day gave all the students in her class, you know, kind of 25 kids in the class. She's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down the names of everybody. Take a piece of notebook paper. Write down everyone's name in the class and leave a space after the name. And I want you to write down something about that person that you really liked. A good quality, something they've done, some feature of them that, that you've appreciated, some kindness they've showed you or somebody else. I want you to write it down. And then she's that's what we're going that's our class uh, exercise today. And so everyone sat there and they looked around the room and they wrote. And then she stood by the door and she took all the papers. And then she spent the weekend, uh, she took each name and she put it at the top of a piece of notebook paper. And then she put all, all the, re- the reflections of her, the classmates on each other. And then she gave them out the next uh, Monday. And people looked at them and, and, and uh, the, the students just spent like 10 minutes going, wow, I never not knew anybody thought of me this way, or anybody noticed this, or anyone, you know, appreciated this about me. And she said it was weird. The atmosphere in the class just lit up. But it was just assignment. You know, she thought it would be, but she said that it changed the atmosphere in her class from then on the rest of the year. And so, you know, school's over. They moved on. And a few years later, one of the young men in that class went to Vietnam. He was killed in Vietnam. And uh, all that class, it was pretty close, uh, they were all invited to come to the funeral, and he was a believer, and it was kind of a, you know, a bittersweet thing. If you, I grew up in the Vietnam War, and uh, there were a lot of kids in our school that died, but uh, at the funeral, all these kids were there, and they were, you know, they hadn't seen each other. It was like five or six years later after college, that whole, uh, that, that length of time, and so she's there, and his parents came up to her and said, oh my gosh, you know, uh, this, let me think what the young guy's name was. Uh, uh, Mark, uh, Mark's parents uh, saw this teacher, and they said, would you please come out to lunch afterwards? A lot of the classmates were going to go out to lunch over here. And so they all went out to lunch, and they sat down, and, and uh, the, the, the parents pulled out this folded, and, and th- this folded piece of notebook paper that had been taped over and over and over. And, and they said, we heard that you were the one that inspired your classmates, the, the class, to, to write these things down. Mark had this on him when he was killed. He kept it with him. And then all these other people heard it, and people started pulling him out of their pockets. 
And one woman pulled her diary out. She said, in the front of my diary, I have this written, all these things that my classmates wrote down. And person after person after person talked about, years later, that they were holding on to that. And that was the power of encouragement just went on and on and on. It's, it's a, we have incredible opportunities to impact people if we'll just use them. And they don't seem real spiritual, but they are. They minister grace. They give grace to people. Uh, last one, I want to read the story of a, a guy. You might have heard this before, but uh, there's a, a teacher named Mrs. Thompson, Jean Thompson, and she taught fifth grade. And uh, she saw this little fifth grader who really looked kind of just, just the first day of school. He was just a cloud was over his life. And his name was Teddy Stoddard. And she noticed he didn't play with the other kids. He just kind of kept to himself. He just looked really depressed. And so uh, that went on for a few weeks. And she, he just didn't do well in school. You know, he didn't react well to anything. And so she went, went back to uh, the administration, asked some questions, and she looked at reports. And so, uh, because the teachers have to write reviews uh, periodically about the kids' progress and, you know, what the teachers think of them. And so she went back into the reviews. And she said when she opened his file, she was in for a surprise. His first grade teacher had written, Teddy is a bright, inquisitive child with a ready laugh. He does work neatly and has good manners. He's a joy to be around. His second grade teacher wrote, Teddy is an excellent student and is well-liked by his classmates. But he's troubled because his mother has a terminal illness and life at home is a struggle. His third grade teacher recorded, Teddy continues to work hard, but his mother's death has been hard on him. He tries to do his best, but his father doesn't show much interest, and his home life um, must be affecting him, and steps should be taken to, you know, to, to intervene. Teddy's fourth grade teacher wrote, Teddy is withdrawn and doesn't show much interest in school. He doesn't have any friends and sometimes sleeps in class. He's tardy and could become a problem. So Miss Thompson realized the problem. But Christmas was coming quickly. It was all she could do with the school play and all until the day before the holidays began, and she suddenly was forced to focus on Teddy Stoddard on the last day before Christmas break. Her students brought her presents. Back, I, don't know if, I don't know if kids do this in school, but back in the day, uh, we used to always at Christmas, uh, we would bring, we'd wrap up little presents for the teachers, right? And so uh, Teddy's was, uh, pr- uh, had this bright ribbon around it, really bright paper, but it was just kind of clumsily uh, wrapped. And Mrs. Thompson took pains to open it. In the middle, she took all the presents on and she found his and she opened it up with the whole class watching. And uh, some of the children started to laugh when she opened it up. And there was a rhinestone bracelet with some of the stones missing and a bottle of cologne that was only one quarter full. So she told the kids, because the kids were, you know, they didn't know who it was, but because uh, they, you know, they didn't know who gave what. But they started laughing at it. And so she stifled the laughter, and then she exclaimed, what a beautiful bracelet this was. And she put it on her wrist and said, isn't that beautiful? Whoever gave this to me, thank you so much. And she knew it was Teddy. Then she took some of the perfume, and she dabbed it behind her ear, and she said, oh, that's such wonderful perfume. 
thank you so much, right? So she dabs it on there. At the end of that day, as the other children joyously race from the room to go home for Christmas break, Teddy Stoddard stayed behind just long enough to say, Mrs. Thompson, today you smelled just like my mom, my mom used to. And as soon as Teddy left, Mrs. Thompson knelt at her desk and cried. On that very day, she said, I quit teaching, reading, writing, and spelling. And she said, I began to teach children. She paid particular attention to Teddy. And as she worked with him, he seemed to come alive. The more she encouraged him, the faster he responded. And on days that there would be an important test, she would remember the cologne that Teddy had given her, and she would wear it. By the end of the year, Teddy had become one of the best children in the class. He'd become her pet. Uh, and a year later, she found a note under her door from Teddy telling her, she went on, he went on to the next grade, that of all the teachers she had in elementary school, she was his favorite. And as six years went by, she got another note from Teddy. He wrote that as he, that as he finished high school, he finished third in his class. And she was still his favorite, still his favorite teacher. Sorry about that. Four years after that, he, she got another letter saying he graduated college. It was tough, but that he had graduated with uh, highest honors. And he assured Mrs. Thompson she was still his favorite teacher. Then four more years passed, and another letter came. This time, he explained after he got his bachelor's degree, he decided to go a little further. And he told her that he was still, she was still his favorite teacher, but now his name was a little longer. Teddy Stoddard, M.D., the story doesn't end. There was another letter that spring. Teddy said that he had met a girl and was to be married. And he explained his father had died a couple of years before, and he was wondering if Mrs. Thompson might agree to sit in the pew, usually reserved for the mother of the groom, because his mom and dad were both gone now. And so uh, the power of this exchange between Mrs. Thompson and Teddy was that she kept encouraging him because she saw his need. You understand? She read it about his story. And a lot of times that's what's missing in when we think of, I don't have any, I don't know how to encourage people. You've got to get to know people to know how to encourage them. You've got to see them as real people and not just sometimes as people that are difficult. Because for every person that you work with that complains all the time, that's a person that no one has stopped and just Listen to what they're complaining about. And not that, that you want to condone that, but probably nobody's ever stopped and said to that person, man, it sounds like you, you've been having a tough time. What's going on? And just listen. Because sometimes when people complain, they just need to be listened to because they don't feel like anybody listens to them and they don't matter. And when someone starts listening to them, all of a sudden the complaining just starts dropping. You don't even have to say anything except to observe that they've had a hard time. But that takes us having an orientation towards caring about people and loving people and believing that our words have real power and that we're supposed to say things that really build people up. Well, I, you, know, you may be sitting here, and here's what you're thinking of, probably. Uh, you know, I'd love to be one of those kind of people, John, but... You know, my family wasn't like that. I'm not naturally an encouraging person. I'm quiet or I'm, you know, maybe I lean a little bit towards the, you know, I see the glass half full 
And I'm not a half, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a half empty kind of person and not a half full sort of person. So I don't see the sun shine behind every dark cloud and, and on and on and on. You can, you can. But the first thing you have to say is that's what you're supposed to be doing, that that's what you're made for, that your words can give life to people. But you have to decide that that's really an ambition and an objective that you want to pursue. And once you do that, all you have to do is say, every day, God, help me to say one encouraging thing to one person. Help me to see someone around me who needs to experience your grace and help me to express it verbally through, affirm, through apology, affirmation, gratitude, admonishment, comfort, and there's other positive sorts of types of speech. But that simple objective every day will begin to tune you in to the fact that there's people all around you that you have an opportunity to impact their lives in profound ways. And some of them will begin to be people that you didn't think you would ever really have much of an affection for. You're going to begin, when you do this, you begin to tap into the heart of God for people. And suddenly you begin to see them in a different light. You will see them like God sees them. And he sees the good and bad with us. Don't think he doesn't. He does. But he chooses to speak these words of encouragement and life to us constantly, constantly. I mean, if God wanted to pick us apart, we'd be in trouble. But he doesn't do that. If you, if you see how Jesus related to people, he just did not embody that kind of attitude. Now, the, the Holy Spirit is here today. In fact, at the end of this, this passage in verse 429, it says, God wants us to be people that, that spread grace around. And then he, the next verse connects us as the Holy Spirit. Grace and the Holy Spirit, they connect together. When we become followers of Jesus, when we, when we see we need God's grace in our lives and that we've been separated from God and that Jesus is the one who can reconcile us to God, his death on the cross pays for our sins. When we begin to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us. And the person of Jesus begins to be formed in us little by little by little by little. But it doesn't happen without our cooperation. And so when we have God put his finger on an area of our life, he'll do things one at a time. But words that we say and words that are said to us can really weigh on us. You know what I mean? I mean, they can weigh on you. You can carry them. They become these powerful shaping forces, which actually they were meant to be, but they were meant to be positive, powerful shaping forces in our lives. And I want to close today. We're going to take communion. The Lord's Supper is a, a practice that Jesus gave the church. And it's a picture, uh, it's a picture of a lot of things, but the bread represents his broken body shed for us. I mean, broken for us. The wine represents his blood that was shed for us to establish a new covenant. But Jesus said that he was present in this. 
that he would be present wherever we remember his promise, the promise of his life. Because this, this represents the promise of life. And so he said, all you who are weary and heavy laden. In other words, if you're in a place in your life where you don't have much life, isn't that what weariness is? You don't have any life? And you may be weary because of the words that you're constantly pouring out that are hurting other people. You may be weary because of how words have, of others have, have, have just dug into your heart and drained you of life. Jesus says, come to me and my spirit will begin to pour life into you. Give me your failures and give me the failures of others. Put them on me and I'll give you life. But we need to come to him, to the person of Jesus. And this table represents an opportunity to do that. That when we take the bread and the wine, we're coming to the person of Jesus and we're saying, Jesus, I am weary and heavy laden. And would you come and meet me in the deepest part of my soul? And I want to encourage you to walk out of here and and. I'm going to give you just like one minute to think about this for a second, and then we'll respond. So whoever's going to help out with the elements, there's two people are going to stand at the head of this aisle, and two people are going to stand at the head of this aisle. And everyone in these two sections come down this aisle, and everyone come down this aisle. And if you don't want to take communion, you're welcome not to. It's, it's up to you. But they're going to hold the plate of bread out, and they're going to say, this is the body of Christ that was broken for you, and they're going to hold a cup of wine, juice, and like I say, the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. And I, I want to ask you to take the, the bread, dip it in the cup, and then you can take it there, you can sit down. I want to give you an opportunity just before we, you, you take the Lord's Supper to do this. I want to ask you just to close.